Hi, I'm Grant Armstrong, and I get to serve as directing pastor here at St. John's United Methodist Church in Edwardsville, Illinois. We exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Our desire is to be a beacon of faith and service, focusing our passions and gifts to reflect Christ's love to the world. You are invited to join us each week at 9 a.m. for a time of traditional worship or at 11 a.m. for contemporary worship. Thanks for joining us for this online version of the sermon. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. Jesus is teaching here, saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my Father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you, so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I am going. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was just on February 20th when I once again found myself walking somewhat in the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land as we were heading towards Jerusalem from the top of the Mount of Olives. We start the journey on the peak of Mount Bethany, just on the other side of Kidron Valley from the Great Walled City. It was overcast and cool. It had been raining, so the pavement below us was a little bit slick. We walk past the ancient but still active Jewish cemetery on the left, not quite halfway down the hill. And around the midpoint of our descent, we reach a church that's teardrop-shaped called Dominus Flevit, which means the Lord has wept. It's not necessarily the place where Jesus stopped to cry over Jerusalem, but as you look out the window over the communion table, you can see perfectly the Dome of the Rock, which is where we believe the Temple of Jerusalem used to sit. And so we could get a feel for what it is that Jesus was overlooking in the city at that time. As we continue our walk, we find ourselves at the base of the hill, not quite to the lowest point of the valley. And there we find a garden that's filled with olive trees, a garden called Gethsemane. Some of these trees new, some ancient. This garden is adjacent to a church called the Agony Church, or the Church of All Nations, called so because 12 countries contributed to its construction, and each country gets to show its presence there with the mark of a coat of arms on the 12 small domes forming the roof of the church. It's a beautiful walk down to the valley as we approach Jerusalem. It's a little perilous for how steep it is, and I'm sure when Jesus walked that pathway by colt or by donkey, the pavement would not have been quite so slick if there was any pavement at all. In Jesus' time, he was walking and the donkey was stepping over garments and cloaks that had been laid down before him, and so I'm not sure that the slickness of the pavement would have mattered at all. As we are walking, the path was quiet. Nobody's making raucous shouts of Hosanna. Nobody's waving branches or beating tambourines. It's mostly just a bunch of older tourists who are trying not to pant too loudly as we engage in a walk that's not easily mimicked by the stairmasters or treadmills that we had been practicing on back home. Even still, in the quiet, I can look around and observe the glory of God all around me. Nobody is shouting, but the presence of Jesus Christ is clearly expressed all around. It reminds me of a scripture from Jesus' journey down that identical path. 
In Luke chapter 19, we read how when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. But some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. And Jesus replied, If they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. The road I was walking was nearly silent except for the fall of footsteps. But the trees lining the road, the stones that were placed on the sepulchres, the bricks on the pavement, the olive branches that were outstretched towards heaven, the stone where the tradition tells us Jesus prayed in desperation to the point where he was sweating drops of blood, each and every rock, stone, tree, and cloud, every bit of creation was shouting with the echoes of those eternal praises, blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. It's there if we have ears to hear the praises rising up from creation to our Savior. Maybe this Palm Sunday feels a little quiet to you. Maybe it seems like our praises aren't rising up quite loudly enough, or our branches aren't waving and swinging sincerely enough. And that may seem odd, but if you listen really closely, maybe you'll notice, like the psalm writer did, that praise is constantly rising up all around us. Let the sea and everything in it shout its praise. Let the earth and all living things join in. Let the rivers clap its hands with glee. Let the hills sing out their songs of joy before the Lord. As much as our hearts long for the chance to gather and praise, don't worry. God will not be shortchanged. And we are certainly not alone in our praises. That takes us to our first lesson of this morning's scripture, and that is trusting in Christ eases our troubled hearts. Trusting in Christ eases our troubled hearts. Jesus is telling his followers, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am and you know the way to the place where I am going. I remember the very first home that my wife Amy and I bought down in Fairview Heights. It was a 900-some square foot, two-bedroom, one-bath house built in 1953 with wood siding and an unfinished basement that took on water every single time it rained. It was the definition of good bones, despite the fact that some of those bones may have had some asbestos tile a couple of layers deep, and maybe the drain on the tub had a little bit of lead in the piping. I'm not positive. I tried not to look too closely. Still, it was a fun place that made a beautiful starter home for things like building up some equity, improving a line of credit, and to just dream and start our family together and welcome our firstborn into our household. We had quirky neighbors. There was a constant smell of fried food on either end of our street from the restaurants down the road. We were right near the fire station, and so we could hear the, the yell of the fire truck sirens going on at all hours of the day. It was a great place to get started. It was just right, and for some, it would probably feel exactly like what Jesus described here, a, a home with more than enough room. And while I appreciate that perspective greatly, I'm also glad that it's not where my family of five gets to shelter in place right now. 
I don't know that I've recently expressed gratitude to the congregation for the, the parsonage that you provide for my family, but I can tell you that if we are going to be hunkered down and sheltered in place anywhere, I'm grateful that it's in Edwardsville in the parsonage that you have, that you have offered to us, and I thank God for that with regularity right now. Jesus wasn't talking about sheltering in place, obviously. He was talking about something much more eternal than even an open-ended executive order. See, Jesus is in the midst of his final discourse with his apostles, the twelve, before he's arrested, tried, tortured, and executed. He had approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday with the kind of acclaim and reception that would typically be reserved for a king, and he was not downplaying the connections that he would have with royalty. This made the religious elite who were already plotting to end his life all the more angry at the popularity of this dangerous outsider. But the discussion we're reflecting on this morning is happening on Thursday evening as Jesus is gathered at a meal with his followers who are his friends. And this group that has traveled with him for three years of public ministry, they're receiving some final cryptic instruction before their rabbi, their master to these apprentices will be taken from them. They need courage and hope, something to help them hang on through hardship. So Jesus tells them about the eternal home that his father has prepared for them. They went through the preparations to prepare the upper room for the Passover meal that they were enjoying and celebrating together. And Jesus is telling them about the preparations that God is making in the home that's being prepared for them. The upper room with its triclinium table that's set up so that the people could lounge around the edges as a server enters into the middle of that U-shape. They had 13 people around that table. That would have taken up substantial space, and Jesus was telling them that what's being prepared for them would be dwarfed, would dwarf that space that they were occupying in the upper room by comparison. I am reminded sometimes of the contrast between my preparations and what God is preparing for me and for us sometimes. I don't know if you've done this lately, but every once in a while I think about the types of things that we're being forced to surrender and to give up for the sake of this season of precautions. And it's okay to grieve those sacrifices and to feel that loss. As a matter of fact, that's human. And healthy grieving can help us to avoid resentment later on. That's appropriate. But still, when I start to get a little too upset about what I'm sacrificing and the sense of loss that I'm experiencing, particularly in the little things, I have these verses that come to mind when I start to have my own pity parties. One is from Romans chapter 8. It says, Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. And then in 2 Corinthians, we read how, For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. They produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs all of these troubles, and the glory will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. In writing to the Roman and Corinth church, I think the Apostle Paul was trying to relate to the Christians in those places what Jesus was trying to relay to his followers in that upper room. You may sacrifice and you may suffer, but not in vain. Focus on eternity for your peace of mind. See, there's nothing that we surrender for the sake of Jesus Christ that will not be restored to us in better form many times over in eternity. 
There is nothing of our experience that God won't redeem for the sake of a kingdom that does not fade. Jesus tells his followers, they know the way to this eternal place where he is going. That leads to our second lesson. In times of uncertainty, faith seeks understanding and clarity. In times of uncertainty, faith seeks understanding and clarity. No, we don't know, Lord, Thomas said. We have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? I love Thomas, the Apostle Thomas. He seeks clarification. The man catches a lot of heat for wanting to see what it is that needs to be proven. But I'm grateful for the folks who are probably totally tuned in. They're paying attention. They're finding themselves just as confused as can be. And they still ask the clarifying questions that other people probably want to ask, but they don't have the chutzpah. And Thomas has the chutzpah. I've said before that I believe the majority of these apostles were probably between 16 and 19 years old based on the practice of apprenticeship in Jesus' time and on some of the scriptural cues about who would have been the proper age to pay the temple tax among Jesus' followers. And so I picture Jesus here sharing this message at a youth group dinner. And he says, guys, you know the directions to where we're going. And Thomas says, uh, nope. Where are we going? Nobody in the room is getting it. Lots of them were probably trying to look smart and nodding like, yeah, Jesus, we're totally tracking with you. We know right where we're going. Mm-hmm. And inside they're like, man, I hope there's not going to be a test on this later. But Thomas drops the facade and admits, I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't really know what you're doing. What are we doing? I like to look like I know what I'm doing. I like to... Keep up the front, even when I don't know what I'm doing. But there are times when that facade absolutely cracks. This season has been one of those times. I can remain fairly agile. I can make plans and have backup plans for my plans and contingency plans for my backup plans for my plans. But there are parts of what we're going through that I don't really get. I don't get when people I care for are getting sick and losing loved ones. I don't get why countless people and businesses are going to face financial ruin. I don't get why when we probably need comfort the most, our precautions prevent us from embracing. I don't know what the church is going to look like on the other side of this defining moment. I don't know if my flailing efforts are anything close to appropriate to the calling that God has placed on my life. In short, when I pray, sometimes I say to God, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what you're doing. What are we doing? And in those moments of honesty, God again reveals something incredibly and eternally true. That's our third lesson. Jesus is our journey and our destination. Jesus is our journey and our destination. Jesus told Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who the Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is a charged passage, and I don't want to take away from any of the strength of the claim that Jesus is making here, because I don't think he intended for us to. But I do want us to hear it with those young and uncertain followers who are at dinner with Jesus. He wasn't talking to them about other faith traditions that didn't even come up. He wasn't talking about later Christian theological arguments about Christian universalism and Christian inclusivism and Christian exclusivism. Those are worthwhile conversations when handled with humility. But Jesus here 
was answering Thomas's question, how can we know the way? And Jesus told these people who had dedicated themselves to following him for the sake of their God and the kingdom of heaven, that when they need to know where to go, when they need to know what was right, and when they need the strength to carry on or ultimately to let go, the answer is and will always be right there in front of them. If they want to know the heart of God the Father, the answer is Jesus. If they wanted to know the character of the creator of the universe, the answer is Jesus. If they want to know how to live fully, it's right in front of their eyes this whole time. If they want to live a life for love that has the power to transform people one person at a time, then they'll live like Jesus. With each breath, until they breathe no more, Jesus will live in them. In their words and actions, Jesus will speak and serve through them. Even in their deaths, Jesus will carry them home. And when we trust in Christ, Jesus lives and speaks and serves through us until the day he carries us home. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We can't know for certain where the grace of God is not, but we know for certain where it is. It's in Jesus Christ, our Lord. We have an opportunity to celebrate the presence of God with us. It's in a tradition that's been handed to us over a couple of hundred of, hundred of years. Uh, in our Methodist tradition, we have certain elements that need to be present for us to celebrate communion in earnest. And that's something like an ordained elder to consecrate the elements, grape juice, bread, uh, the gathering of the people. And in times when those elements have not been present, we have this tradition that's been passed on to us from another Christian uh, or group. There was a German Moravian group that handed to us this celebration called the Love Feast. And the Love Feast is simply a gathering of people together in fellowship, sharing a meal and testifying to the goodness of God. It doesn't require these elements that we've had before. It basically takes what we have and acknowledges the goodness of God in our midst. And so in our homes, we're going to be invited to share in a love feast today, and I'll talk us through a little bit of that, but it starts with a prayer of thanksgiving. And so we're going to use a, a fairly traditional thanksgiving prayer, and it's one that you may have heard before to a somewhat familiar tune, and it goes like this. Be present at our table, Lord. Be here and everywhere adored. Your creatures bless and grant that we may feast in fellowship with thee. Amen. Now we get to spend some time confessing our sin and receiving the pardon of God. We're going to join in the words of Psalm 51, a psalm of contrition. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, Purify me from my sin. For I recognize that my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. 
don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Scripture promises us in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will cleanse us of all unrighteousness and forgive us of our sins. And so, in the name of Jesus Christ, we have received that forgiveness. Now we move to a time of being able to eat and drink and testify to the goodness of God together. It's part of this tradition that as the music is about to play, that each person would be able to give thanks to God for something, some place where they've seen God working recently. And once they've had an opportunity to give thanks, then they would eat of whatever bread type thing they have and drink of whatever liquid they happen to have. And then you would have a chance to do that with whomever you're worshiping with today. And so everybody would get a turn. You would just give thanks, eat, and drink. If you've got a donut and coffee, I've got my coffee here, then that's what you've got, and God will receive that and be present with us as we celebrate. And so just to offer an example, I give thanks to God for the chance to worship with you in this way and to have the opportunity to celebrate in this love feast together. Now it's your turn. As the music plays, give thanks, eat, and drink together.
Now we close with a song of thanks. This is sung to the tune of This Is My Father's World. If you happen to know the tune, please feel free to sing along. Father of earth and heaven, your hungry children fed. Your grace to now our spirits given is true immortal bread. Let us and all our race in Jesus Christ to prove the sweetness of your saving grace, your satisfying love.